I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome back to Play Me and our interview with Christine Quintana, the playwright behind the Governor General-nominated play Selfie, which is available now on Play Me. So playwright Christine Quintana is brave to dive into the world of modern-day teenagers, navigating life as they transition from kids to young adults. In her play Selfie, three high school students with close relationships find themselves dealing with the aftermath of an event that happened at a drunken house party. The next day, they try to piece together what exactly happened, and the invisible issue of consent is brought to the foreground. Chris, what I love about this play is that the characters are all so likable. On the surface, there doesn't seem to be a bad person. And I really didn't want to see any of them get hurt. That's what makes it all the more painful when we dive deeper into the incident at the center of the play. When the layers get peeled back, we get to see where things went horribly wrong and what the very serious consequences are. Chris, you got to speak to Christine. I'm just really curious about what the reaction was from students when they were sitting in the audience. Did she talk a little bit about that? Yeah, Christine did talk about some of the comments that both youth and adults made during the talkback sessions while she was developing the show. And I have to say, I was I was really taken aback by some of what people said. Uh, I think you'll probably be as surprised as I was. Christine Quintana is an award-winning playwright born in Los Angeles to a Mexican-American father and a Dutch-British-Canadian mother. She's known for her plays The Last, co-created with Molly McKinnon, and Clean, and was a Sminovich Prize protege winner for playwriting. Her show Selfie was nominated for the Governor General Award for Drama. I had a chance to speak with Christine over Zoom while she was at home in Vancouver about what it was like growing up as a Mexican-American while living in Canada, why she wrote Selfie, and how social media has changed since she wrote her hit play. This is my conversation with Christine Quintana. Christine, first, before we get into this, I'd just love to find out a little bit more about what made you the writer you are today. So let's start from the beginning. I'd love to talk about your youth and growing up. Can you tell me a little bit what it was like to be you as a kid? Yeah. Um, I was born in East Los Angeles. My dad was a punk rock drummer. He actually had quite a career. He toured the world. He played with people like Bob Dylan and Joan Osborne. No. 
uh, yeah, pretty cool. I have lots of YouTubes of him playing like the Grammys and David Letterman and all these things. Were these people in your life? Did you meet them? Were you? I uh, yeah. I mean, I was a baby for a lot of it, but like I was held as a baby by all of the Red Hot Chili Peppers um, <laughs> and those kind of things. <laughs> no wonder you went into the arts. Oh my gosh! But you know, I mean, I guess the thing you know, one of the my origin story is that you realize that being a working artist is not exceptionally glamorous most of the time. <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> that it's very much just a, a job that you do and that artists are just, you know, no matter how successful, just people like everyone else. But, you know, some of them are people that have personal assistants and uh, <laughs> multiple <laughs> homes. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I was born in, in Los Angeles and lived there until sort of just after the L.A. riots, which were right in our neighborhood. And that's when uh, because my mom was Canadian, they were like, OK, they always knew that they wanted to raise me in Canada. But that kind of expedited it because it seemed like a good time to, to get out of L.A. And so we came to Vancouver and that's where I live now, which is Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh territory. How did growing up in Vancouver have an impact on you as a writer? I mean, in East Van and especially in my kind of home neighborhood, which is Commercial Drive, and especially kind of in the 90s and early 2000s when I was growing up, you know, art is everywhere. I think that we have like the highest artists per capita in the country. Mm. And, you know, I grew up going to things like all of the public dreams. That's a little co-op in East Van that does amazing festivals. Like they did the Illuminaries Festival, which was this lantern festival in Trout Lake where hundreds of people, everybody who came would make a paper lantern or wear elaborate costumes and have this beautiful kind of solstice festival or the Parade of Lost Souls, which is around Britannia Community Center at, at Halloween where people, there's stilt walkers and mimes and zombie bands and all these things. And so you know, the the neighborhood itself is just brimming with creativity. And like, I remember even in my primary school, our holiday pageant was written by the parents. Really? <laughs> yeah. So there'd be like, a, you know, a folk artists who would like write original songs for all of us kids to perform. And, uh, you know, a scenic painter would do beautiful murals. So it was really just baked into the culture. So between that and, and having artist parents kind of seemed destined. My God, that's totally taking a school pageant up a couple notches. <laughs> it's like, I love you, son, but don't screw up my work. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I never even thought about it. I feel like I have a really different relationship because growing up around art, you you start to realize that it's sort of like a trade. It's a thing that you do for a job and for money mm -hmm. and that it's also yeah. just a innate way of seeing the world, even if you're not making money from your art, that you are an artist if that's the way that you see and interpret the world. Yeah, and I feel like I probably grew up a lot less precious about it and then a lot with a lot fewer illusions about what the real life of a of an artist is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there there are so many layers to you and and your identity being born in America, growing up in Vancouver, becoming an established artist in Vancouver, and also your background is Mexican as well. So you've got these multiple layers as somebody who who I understand you You identify as Mexican-American. How has living in Canada and having all these multiple histories and identities had an impact on your writing? It's a great question. You know, I just got back from working in Southern California, where one of my plays is getting done. And, you know, I felt this great relief because when I, you know, introduce myself and I say, on my dad's side, I'm Mexican-American. 
my uh, abuelos immigrated to El Paso. Everyone's like, okay, yeah, got it. Yeah. Or me too, or whatever. And, you know, not having to spell Quintana like five times. <laughs> And so to be to be seen and kind of understood in the greater cultural context of being Mexican-American, you know, like I'm not personally from Mexico, but my ancestry is. Yeah. And I, I think I share that with, you know, a lot of my friends, like, you know, a lot of my friends growing up were, you know, maybe second or third or beyond generation Chinese Canadian. Um, and as mm-hmm. a sort of multi-generational kids of diasporas, you lose things, you lose language, you lose cultural knowledge, you lose a sense of belonging to community. But, you know, for me, something else is that, you know, my mom is white, we're of Dutch and British descent on that side, and I look white. And so there's the element of sort of being racialized in the public eye that I don't share with with other people that have mixed backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And yet there's, yeah, the sort of permeability of identity that's really complex. And I find especially, especially as arts organizations and, you know, I think the public in general are suddenly responding to racial justice activism and movements that have been around for a super long time. They didn't all start in June 2020. They predate that by a long, long time. There's sort of this uh, reactionary thing around identity that is really complicated. And so I'm really sensitive to being really careful about how I position myself because I don't want to take up space that's not meant for me. And at the same time, I feel a a really big responsibility in my work to not erase any part of myself. Yeah, (laughs) it's complicated. You know, that's interesting because you mentioned that you present as white on top of all of this. So it just really adds a layer of complexity to this. And thinking about that, a theme, at least that I see throughout your work, is examining situations from different perspectives, looking at things through different eyes. Does your background and your identity play a role in, in this as a theme throughout your work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think with anybody, there's your public life and how you're perceived, and there's the deliberate way that you present yourself to other people. And then there is the sort of deep wealth of, of lived experience and knowledge and identity that lives in you when it's just you alone in your room. And so many of our fundamental misunderstandings of each other and of ourselves come from the friction between all of those different layers of how we move through the world. And I definitely think, you know, being someone of a mixed background, you know, one of my like origin stories was like one side of the family wanting me to be baptized and the other side being like, Uh. no. (laughs) And um, hearing my dad speak Spanish on the phone with my abuela and not being taught Spanish. Yeah. You know, in the introduction to the script for Selfie, you talk about how there's no such thing as colorblind casting. And I think that's a really important point when it comes to looking at the characters and the relationships within the characters of the piece. I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially with a play like this, in the intro that I wrote, I kind of used it as a barometer, right? I said, the way 
the way that these characters are perceived in the bodies of the actors who play them will affect the play no matter what. And if you aren't comfortable having those conversations with the artists that you're engaging, then you're probably not ready to have the conversations that you need to do the piece full stop. Yeah. As an example, when the news of the party breaks and the police come to Chris and Lily's house, we know that the experience of a young white teenager talking to the police is going to be different than a black or indigenous or brown teenager talking to the police because we know the statistics on on how law enforcement interacts with different populations. And we know that that changes the stakes of the play. And it's very naive to imagine that even if within a production you want to pretend that it doesn't matter, that somebody sitting in the audience isn't going to read a different story. And so I wanted to be really clear, you know, not to back down or to shy away from casting three young people who reflect the young people that are in your neighborhood, but that you also need to be responsible and responsive to what story your casting tells. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Selfie isn't your most recent piece. It's an earlier piece. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about where you were in the evolution of your life as an artist when you wrote Selfie. You know, I was at the time like just out of university and I'd been in school in the education system for all of my life, basically, at the point that I started this. And I know that, you know, when you can feel you are being taught something or delivered a moral issue or having a agenda pushed on you as a young person, you spit that out. Mm-hmm. You know, you can taste the the vegetables mashed up and the mac and cheese. You're like, no, thank you to yeah. that. So I wanted to find something that felt impossible, impossible to teach a lesson from mm-hmm. or that didn't have a sort of discernible morality point to it. Yeah. And just this idea of someone being caught between a brother-sister relationship, a best-friend relationship, and the thing that you say, well, that doesn't happen here. What happens when it, it happens in your own community? Yeah. That's kind of where that came about. I think you were 23 or 24 when you wrote it. Is that right? Yeah, I think I finished the first kind of round when I was 23. Wow. It feels like a long time ago. <laughs> How have you changed as a writer? I have another, you know, almost 10 years of watching and reading plays, which is my favorite education. Right. You know, I've been going to the theater with people or by myself since I was like nine years old. Yeah. And so my greatest theatrical education has been just going to the theater. You know, I, I've been through some things since then. I've had some health issues. I lost my dad a couple years ago. Mm. And have grown up a great deal. Looking back on it, you know, when we were recording and and hearing it again, there's a kind of naivety in Selfie that I love to see because it's not with me anymore. Mm. And I think it's also important that that's contained in a piece that's meant for younger people. That it was written by a younger me. That's really interesting. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of workshopping it and getting it to its feet? There's a piece of the play that is actually kind of special because when I was sweating over my kind of last workshop of the piece at Cezium, I was looking for a way to end it. And I knew that I didn't want to end it kind of on this 
grim note of like, you know, lives ruined and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I had stayed up all night. I had done this, you know, thing that you can only do when you're 23 years old, which was I was trying to pull an all-nighter, but I was getting too tired. So I'd set my alarm every half hour. So I'd sleep for half an hour and then wake up for half an hour and write more. And somehow in that fugue state, I remembered a diary entry that I had written when I was 16 and I was going through a lot of stuff. And I went and pulled it out and put it on the end of the play. And that is now the the closing moments of the play of Emma's last speech. And so even in my 23-year-old naivety, I had to reach back further to that, you know, 16, same age as the characters to really find that voice and that kind of flicker of what happens when you're a young person who's also faced a lot already in their life. That's incredible. So this this piece really harkens back to, you know, you as a teenager and has come from, in many ways, you as a teenager. Yeah. I mean, I think that we know that teenagers take themselves really seriously. <laughs> as I know, when I look through the rest of the, you know, let me tell you, not all of the things in my journal from when I was 16 are fit for print, that's for sure. <laughs> but you also know yourself and you know your life when you're 16 yeah. in a certain way that with time you start to look down on and you put distance from. And I think that's so, so not what good TYA is about. It's about honoring the wisdom and strength and complexity of young people. And I think in some ways, the further away I get from that, the harder it would be. Yeah. 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 My name's Chris Tolley and I'm talking to the award-winning playwright, Christine Quintana. And we're talking about her piece, Selfie. We'll be back right after this. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, the topic of consent and sexual assault and really the trauma that that comes out of it is such a, a delicate subject. And I'm just wondering, what drew you to this? Why did you decide to write a play about such an important but difficult subject? I think at the time I was reading a lot in the news, there were these two really big high-profile American cases in Daisyville and in Steubenville of kind of the really textbook terrible older students at a high school getting young girls super drunk, assaulting them. And then despite, in both cases, overwhelming legal evidence, the young boys involved, you know, had an uncle or somebody who knew somebody and got them off scot-free. And it was really easy to look at those cases and have people go, well, that is terrible, but that's what happens in the United States. Mm-hmm. Or that yeah. doesn't happen in a school like ours, or that's football culture, or that's whatever culture. And then having gone to a high school where kids were doing hard drugs and partying and getting super drunk every weekend at totally unsupervised parties and knowing, no, that was happening. That was that was happening all around us. And that it's so easy with these kind of, you know, social issues, as I say in quotes, to say, well, that is a something else issue. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to sort of bring it right into 
a community that would feel like the schools that we were taking it into where you say, well, what if this was somebody you knew? What if this was your brother? What if this was your best friend? What then? And I felt it was really unconstructive sometimes the way that we try to force binaries on things that aren't particularly binary. You know, when we say things like all people who perpetrate sexual assault are monsters. And if someone goes, well, I'm not a monster. My friends aren't monsters. Mm -hmm. The people in my community aren't monsters. Then you go, well, I guess monsters don't exist. Mm -hmm. And so then you are left in this weird state where you know, these things are happening around us and to people that we care about. And there's this absolute unwillingness to name them and to beyond trying to seek justice for something that you, you could never actually get justice for, but to move backwards and say, well, how do we stop this from happening in mm-hmm. the first place? Yeah. You know, I was at a, a thing, a pre-show kind of prep for some educators who had students coming to see Selfie. And the conversation veered to reporting and what do I do with reporting and what happens if I hear about something and I have to be really careful and I don't want to, you know, falsely report and ruin a kid's life and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, well, that's an important thing to talk about, but let's back up. How are you teaching or talking about consent in your classrooms to get you know, in front of this stuff, so stopping before it happens, before there's anything to report. And the room kind of just went silent and everyone was like, oh, I don't even know how to talk about that yeah. with my husband. Yeah. 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 You know, consent is almost an invisible subject in the play. You don't really talk about it until the very end, but it's present throughout in so many different layers throughout the show. Why did you make the choice not to directly talk about consent in it? I think for a couple reasons. One being, of course, that thing where like, if students smell or audiences, adult audiences, if they smell an agenda, they're out. They Mm -hmm. go, okay, I know what this is about. I know that this is teaching me. I can check out, you know, I figured it out in the first five minutes and now I don't have to listen. But then also because we don't talk about it enough. Mm. If it was talked about in the first half of the play, things wouldn't unfold the way that they do. Okay, yeah. And one thing that is really an important point of conversation that comes up in talkbacks at the end is sometimes somebody will say, well, Chris was also drunk. Does that mean that he can't consent either? And the answer is yes. And if we go back to the kind of education that tries to force it into binaries, that it's boy versus girl or whatever, you gloss over the fact that you have two young people who are both too drunk to responsibly engage in sexual activity, period. Yeah. Social media seems to be a metaphor for that gray sort of blurry area between truth and reality and fiction and the manufacturing of image. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about social media and the role that it plays in this piece. Yeah. You know, I I wrote in the intro to Selfie when it was published that Selfie isn't a play about social media any more than Romeo and Juliet is a play about letters. (laughs) (laughs) That it's just uh, a way that things are communicated. Mm -hmm. It is the kind of backdrop for the bigger things that are actually happening between people. Yeah. And that I think that where it links to consent for me is this construction of our identity, that all of the things that get said, I would never do that. 
I'm not that kind of person. I'm not that kind of girl. I'm different now. All of these ways of declaring ourselves, which of course is a big part of being a teenager, but kind of remains a big thing throughout our whole adulthood, Mm -hmm. you know, as we were talking about identity earlier. And that construction of self can sometimes really impede our self-knowledge as well. And that if we do hold in ourselves that we are capable of violating someone's consent, whether in big ways or small, if we entertain that, how does that awaken a new sense of responsibility for our actions and how we treat other people? And that the image of a selfie, the photo that you take at your perfect angle in your perfect light, that's you saying, this is me just the way that I want you to see me mm-hmm. is so different than, than how anyone else would necessarily see you and also shows what you don't see about yourself. You, you mentioned the talkback sessions, and I'm just wondering, how did they go? What kind of things were brought up during those sessions? It's almost always super intense. And the thing that I understand and find continually kind of distressing is that the talkback always ends up being about Chris. Mm. Everyone going, this is so not fair. He didn't mean to. He didn't intend to. Really? Now his life is over. It's ruined. And, you know, to reflect that this is the same. I've seen productions where Chris is played by a black actor, by a white actor, by an actor of color. And of course, that weighs heavily into the intensity of how people respond. And also depending on the demographic of of the schools that are watching it. Is that the same for, for all genders, though, that they say that? You would be really surprised how many girls say... Emma should have known better. Really? Now she's ruined his life. Yeah, absolutely. Even seeing among young people how quick they are to lay this in her lap for drinking Mm. and this kind of desire for justice for Chris, which I also understand. And I think, you know, a well-moderated talkback of this play gets into those things of like, Chris was also too drunk to consent. That is true. And what happened to Emma is not okay. And it's striking to me how quickly we lose the sense of the long lasting trauma that Emma will go through as a result of what happens in this play. Yeah. Well, it's hard for even adults to confront that and admit that. Absolutely. And one of my hopes is that the pandemic and actually the way that we live now has kind of opened a door to talk about consent in sort of non-sexual contexts where... You know, you see somebody on the street that you haven't seen in two years and you go, hey, can I give you a hug? Are you hugging right now? Mm -hmm. You go over to a friend's house and you say, is it okay if I take my mask off? Mm -hmm. And that we are actually in the process of negotiating consent with one another all the time, including those conversations that are not super fun. Like, are you vaccinated? Are, is your, we'd love to have your family over. Are you and your wife vaccinated? All those sticky things that you go, I don't really want to talk about this. And it doesn't seem like my business. And yet right now we understand as we are in a, you know, public health ongoing crisis in which we are responsible for each other, that you actually have to have those kind of uncomfortable, sticky conversations. And that maybe that is opening a little crack for us to go. That practice can follow us everywhere. Yeah. You know, you talk a lot about the reaction from the younger audiences, but of course, selfie works just as well for adults. You know, Play Me, of course, our demographic is an adult audience. And I know you've performed 
the show for adults as well. And I'm just wondering, what's the difference between the reaction from younger audiences and adults? I have been blown away and a little heartbroken by responses from adults in that I've had people of all genders as adults come out crying, saying, I have some stuff I need to think about of some things that I was involved with that I had put away that this has opened up questions about. Yes. I find it hard sometimes with like older teachers who are women who go, oh yeah, but you know, those things happen. It's just a mistake. And you know, that happened to me. It was fine. And you're like, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And it just really reflects, I think, especially generationally, the really entrenched ideas about consent, what we have normalized in terms of unwanted sexual contact or otherwise. And I think that you know, having the characters as teenagers kind of gives you the opportunity to have some distance from it. But that I, I think that there's a lot to say. There's even stuff I, you know, now that I'm many years into talking about this play, still have trouble talking about that. I hope, I hope this offers an opportunity to kind of open the door on. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly does prompt conversation and, and it makes you look at things from different points of view. You know, in your acceptance speech for the Sminovich Awards, you were chosen as Marcus Yusuf's protege, and Marcus would be familiar to our audience. We featured Winners and Losers. That was co-written by him and James Long. And in your acceptance speech, you talked about theatre as communion. And I'd just love to hear what you meant by that. Yeah. And that was, of course, something that I got from Marcus in his sort of writings while he was artistic director at New World Theatre and I was working there. The idea of theatre communion, and that kind of stuck with me. And once I started to look at it that way, I really saw it everywhere. And the idea that, you know, when we come together to see a show, to make a show, we create these microcosms of communities. You know, I say this as I'm sitting here you know, two blocks from the school that I went to when I grew up and just down the street from all the stores that I know and all the other artists that live in this neighborhood. And that's my little community here. And that when we sit down together as an audience, that we form a a community, if even for an hour or two, and that the, the future of theater, I think, is the ability to breathe together and through all the differences that we bring into that room together, whether they're visible or invisible, and that whether it's a piece like Selfie, where there might be really polarized experiences or things that really hit you in a different way than the person sitting next to you, or somebody who laughs at a part that you don't think is funny, but that the act of communion is being willing to hold that space together. And I think especially as we've had two years of experimenting ways to share that communion with each other, even if we're not in the same space. And as we sort of slowly, carefully find our way back together, I think it's more important than ever. And that if we can hold that space with each other, even through everything that makes us different, everything that we bring into the room with us, everything that we try to leave outside of the room with us, that's what's going to get us through the next couple years. That 
That was Chris speaking with playwright Christine Quintana about her play Selfie, which is available now on Play Me. And we'll be back next with the sweet and seductive hit show Sexy Laundry by Michelle Rimmel. Armed with a copy of Sex for Dummies, Alice and Henry check themselves into a trendy spa hotel with a mission to jumpstart their 25-year marriage. Can they embrace all the wild suggestions from the marriage saving manual? You'll have to tune into the podcast to find out. And if you're interested in more plays about teens, we recommend The Fish Eyes Trilogy by Anita Majumdar, available on the Play Me podcast, along with dozens of other shows in every genre. Until then, you can hear Play Me on the radio every Sunday at 9pm and on Wednesdays at 11pm on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Thanks for listening. We'd love to know what you think about Play Me. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Theatre or Instagram at PlayMePodcast. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. A special thanks to our CBC producers, Sarah Clayton, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is R.F. Norani. Our senior director is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.